The second coming of Jesus is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. It is a theme of hope in many of our songs. It is the climax of many Christian creeds. It's part of our motivation for evangelism and our missionary work. Jesus taught us to be taught for it to be a part of our prayers when he said we are to pray for his kingdom to come. The Apostle John understood the second coming of Jesus was the point of our hope because when Jesus said, I come quickly, John replied, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. There should be a longing and a desire within us for Christ to return. The second coming of Jesus is firmly rooted in the truth of God's word. It's not an idea of religious fanatics. It's not the creation of speculative theologians. It is taught all throughout God's word. It is divinely revealed, clearly stated, prominently displayed all throughout God's word. While there are several different interpretations about the end, and we'll talk about some in just a minute, all the different views basically adhere to the same fundamental issues. For instance, all agree Jesus is coming again. All agree there is a general resurrection of the dead. All agree there is a judgment to come. All agree the saved will enter into heaven And all agree the lost will be cast into the lake of fire. Most of the disagreements surround the millennial reign of Jesus, as described in Revelation 20, what we're going to look at today. Now, before we get into the text, I kind of want to give you the three broad categories, the three broad views, the most popular views of the millennial reign. First, there is all millennialism. According to all millennialism, disciples, uh, all millennial disciples, The thousand-year reign is symbolic of the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. They would say the millennial reign of Jesus is in the hearts of his disciples and his church and is essentially going on right now. The period will end with the second coming of Jesus. So all millennial believers do not believe uh, in a literal thousand-year reign. They do not believe in a literal tribulation period leading up to the thousand-year reign because they believe that tribulation is kind of always going on on the earth uh, all the time. To them, the events described of the millennium in Revelation 21 through 6 are occurring now. All millennials believe as the last day approach, the forces of evil will get stronger and increase, and this will climax with the Antichrist, the great tribulation he will bring, and then Christ will come, conquer them, and it's the end. Heaven comes down, and we move on to the end. Then there is post-millennialism. According to post-millennialism, peace on earth will be ushered in by the church. At the end of time, Satan will be released, but Jesus will return, defeat Satan, and reign forever. Post-millennials believe Jesus returned to a world that has been Christianized by the church. Thus, the millennium will be established by the church, and Jesus will only return after the millennium. So the way this will work is the church will become so successful at sharing the gospel that the world will largely be converted And that is the thousand year reign that it will lead to this thousand years of peace and prosperity because of the reign of Christ in the hearts of the people. And then Jesus will come back. And then there is the premillennial belief. Premillennials say that the thousand year period of time is literal. That is a literal thousand year period of time at the end when Jesus will reign on the earth. They believe Jesus second coming in Revelation 19 is also literal. 
and that it will precede the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Premillennials believe that the visions described in Revelation uh, must be interpreted sequentially. First, Revelation 19, the second coming of Jesus. Then, Revelation 20, the first few verses, the, the binding of Satan for a thousand years, the first resurrection of the saints, the reign of Christ for a thousand years, Satan released, he deceives followers, uh, goes to battle against Jesus, and then is destroyed, tossed into the lake of fire. His disciples, his followers are judged, and then New Jerusalem comes down. So those are the three main views that you will see in the world today in commentaries and things on Revelation. Each of those three has their own set of strengths, their own set of weaknesses. Each answers some questions but raises others. Each takes the Word of God seriously and has major Bible points to prove what they believe. This is why serious discussions of the end times must be done with grace and humility. Because the reality is any of us could be wrong. Um, and so we always want to go into that with this. Those who disagree with whether we're all millennial, premillennial, or postmillennial, they are not our enemies. They are not false believers. They are fellow disciples of Jesus struggling to understand a difficult passage of Scripture. So now let's dig into it. Open your Bible to Revelation 20 if you haven't already. Uh, it's page 961 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast nor his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to war. The number of them is like the sand on the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints at the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The title of the message is The Millennium. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. Guide us today to understand your word. Take the principles that we'll talk about. Apply them to our hearts. Let your word give us hope. Let your word give us strength. Help us to be a people who receive the warnings given in it. Work in our hearts, strengthen us to be yours, to do your will in all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I stated, there are a plethora of views regarding the millennial reign of Jesus. 
Um, and, and even within each group, there are varieties of understanding. So some all millennials believe a little bit different this way. There are different kinds of pre-millennials, different kinds of post-millennials. And so it's really hard to get a grasp on this passage because you read a variety of commentaries, you get a variety of views. And after reading quite a bit about this passage and what the different scholars believe, I was reminded of the words of Solomon who said, But my child, be warned. There's no end of opinions ready to be expressed. Studying them can go on forever and ever and become exhausting. Amen to that. Uh, There is just no end of ideas about this. And, And so there's a lot, to be honest, I don't understand about this period of time. Now, I do believe it is a literal period of time. I believe it happens... Revelation 19, Revelation 20, the second half of Revelation 20, Revelation 21. I believe it happens in that order, and I believe it happens literally. But there's a lot that goes on in the thousand years. People speculate and have ideas about. I honestly don't know. So rather than delve deeply into that sort of speculation and those sort of ideas that that I'm not 100% certain about, what I'm going to do is just talk about the passage and what I know to be true and then give you three, three points, three takeaways, three lessons we can learn from the fact Jesus will reign on the earth at the end of time. So first we see in verses 1 through 3, chapter 20 picks up right where chapter 19 ends. Right? Jesus brings judgment. The beast and the false prophet are taken. They're tossed into the pit, uh, into the, the, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Then, so it's, it's immediately following this. An angel comes down from heaven. He has the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He takes hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. He binds him for a thousand years, throws him into the abyss and shuts and seals it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. This is why there's a thousand years of peace, prosperity, and all of that on the earth is because Satan is bound. His influence is gone. He is not able to deceive or harm anyone any longer. Now, it's interesting. Satan is not tossed into the lake of fire yet. He's not tossed in the lake of fire at the end of the, cha- the end of this particular passage we're studying. Here he is tossed into the abyss. This is not his final destination. It is, it is his temporary holding cell until he's tossed into his final destination. But what I think is interesting also is... He's tossed into the abyss, which is something we've seen earlier. He is tossed into a place God had used as a part of his judgment on humanity. When the fifth trumpet was sounded, trumpet or smoke and brimstone came out of this place. It covered the earth. It blocked out the sun. It released locusts with scorpion-like stings. And yet this is where Satan is bound for the thousands. I, I think that Satan is put here. Not only to contain him, but as a place of punishment. It is, it is a reminder he is not going to be the ultimate victor. It is a reminder there is a God who rules over all, even over him. Then in verse 4 you see thrones and they that set upon them and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast nor his image, nor received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this is our first image in 
a little bit of what happens to disciples of Jesus. There are thrones, people setting upon them. Judgment is committed to them. The disciples of Jesus who would not take the mark, who preached the gospel, who pursued Christ until their heads were taken off of them, they are then raised to life and given places of honor here in the millennial reign in this kingdom of Christ. They died in the tribulation, but they are raised here. And they they are raised to live forever here. Now, it's interesting though. If all we had was verse 4, we would think that the only people in this millennial reign are the disciples of Jesus who died during the tribulation. But I don't believe that's the case. Look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Right. So some came to life. Some stayed where they were. And it calls this the first resurrection. Now look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So that the, this is the first resurrection and those who are raised in the first resurrection are blessed and holy. And they're blessed because the second death has no power over them. So what is the second death? Well, look down at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. So here's the second resurrection right here. The dead are standing, uh, raised to stand before this great throne. Books are opened. Another book was opened. The book of life is opened. And they were judged out of the things written to them according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the death who were in them. And each were judged according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So those who are raised in the first resurrection, basically they don't go to hell. They don't, they're not cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. So it is those who died during the tribulation period, but it is all the faithful saints of God from every generation who in their lifetime, they refuse to serve the dragon. They refuse to conform to his will and to his want. They refuse to be a part of his kingdom because of their faith and their devotion to Jesus. And therefore they are raised in the first resurrection. They are spared from the penalty of the second death. And they will reign with Christ through the millennial. And then they will reign with Christ throughout all of eternity. And you get to verse 7. And at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. And, and this is interesting. And again, this is one of those things that I don't know fully all I understand about it. Right? Satan is released. He doesn't escape. Right? That's not the picture. It's not he's tied up for a thousand years and then all that time he's been he snuggled in some lock picks and he was able to pick the lock from the inside and he escapes out. That's not what happens. He's released. Who releases him? Well, the indication from all of Revelation is God is the one doing all of these things. So for some reason, after binding him for a thousand years, God releases him on the earth. I don't know why exactly. But that's what happens. God releases him. He comes out and, and he does what he does. He deceives people. And he gathers them to rebel against Jesus. And he goes to the what it calls in verse 9, the beloved city, which I believe is Jerusalem. And as they gather on the outside, fire comes from heaven and devours them. That's the people who sided with the devil. And then the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire 
where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, again, the picture isn't of this epic battle where God wins. Satan is let out by God. He gathers an army. He forms up against Christ. And as he's ready for battle, God's just like, it's over. And the army is destroyed. Satan is taken. He is tossed into the lake of fire where he will live and be tormented. Now, that part is important. Tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a a big key, a big important truth for us. Because we often hear, hear the idea that Satan rules from heaven. Now, that idea is not found anywhere In God's word. God's word rather consistently tells us Satan has been cast out of heaven and he is on the earth seeking someone to destroy. Wrecking havoc here. Hell is not his domain. It never has been and it never will be. Hell is not the place where Satan hatches schemes against us. Satan and his demons don't go to hell and regroup and then come back up and attack the people's. Hell is a place they fear. Hell was actually, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 41, was created not for people, but for Satan and his angels. It is a place where they will be consigned at the end of time and they will be tormented throughout all of eternity, just like all who have rejected Christ and his rule and his reign over their lives. So with all of this about Jesus reigning, three lessons that we need to see here. One, God is sovereign regardless of how it may seem. God is sovereign regardless of how it may seem. One of the main themes throughout the book of Revelation is the fact God is sovereign. And we've talked about that multiple times throughout this. But with this... It's easy for us looking in the broad overview and say, God's sovereign. But I want us to think about it from a different perspective. Imagine. Imagine you are alive during the tribulation period described in the book of Revelation. You're alive to the opening of the seals, the war, the famines, the rise of the Antichrist, the slaughter Of the saints, the binding of Satan, the loosing of Satan, and just all the the bad things Revelation describes. Could you have an image in your mind of what that's like? Okay, now with that in your mind, let me ask you some questions. If you went through the tribulation period, did you pray for God's protection? Did you pray for God's provision? Of course you did. That's what you do. And yet, despite your prayers, you still went without because you refused to take the mark and you're unable to buy or sell without the mark. And, and yet, despite your prayers, you're, you're captured and you're giving an ultimatum. Take the mark or die. Despite your prayers your conti- and your continued faithfulness to Jesus... You refuse the mark. You continue to proclaim the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the result of your faith and faithfulness is your beheading. 
and suffering up to that point. At any point along the way, when you're being faithful and yet suffering to the point of death, do you ever wonder why God doesn't seem to be doing more on your behalf? Does it ever feel to you like maybe the dragon is winning and God has lost control? Or or imagine you're a disciple of Jesus in Afghanistan right now. And we're hunkered down in a building. And we have risked our lives to gather and we have prayed for our safety. And yet as we look around the people that are missing... They're not missing because they stayed home to watch Desperate Housewives. They're missing because the Taliban has them. They're missing because right now their fingers are being cut off. Right now they're being slaughtered for their their faith in Christ. And because they won't tell our name to the Taliban. Does it feel like maybe the dragon is winning? God has lost control? Or imagine... You're you. And for whatever reason, circumstances in your life are beyond your control. And you pray and you pray and you pray. Not only do things not get better, they seem to get worse. Does it ever feel like the dragon is winning and God has lost control? The, The truth, the lesson from this, from Revelation, and what we've seen is, regardless of how it may seem, God is active. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is always sovereign over everything that's going on. He is the King over kings, the Lord over lords. He is the ruler of all. He is the ruler in the tribulation period as we look at the overview and see it. But He is the ruler now. Circumstances will likely come into all of our lives that are beyond our control. And we will pray and we will labor and we will do everything we know how to do to fix it in the name of Jesus. Not through our effort, not because we're great, but we will do the best of our abilities, what the Bible and God has told us to do. And it will not improve. It will get worse. And in those times, we will be tempted to think God has lost control and the dragon is winning in our lives. Because this, that's a real possibility. Those things do happen in the lives of good, godly, faithful, consistent disciples of Jesus. And these are times when our faith is tested. These are the times where we must live what we believe. We must keep our minds on the truth, the reality. Regardless of how it seems, God is sovereign. God is in control. This doesn't mean we will understand what's going on. This doesn't mean we'll understand why it's going on. This doesn't mean it won't be hard. This doesn't mean it won't be painful. But it does mean our God has not forgotten us. Our God has not abandoned us. Our God has not lost control. Our God is sovereign. Regardless of how it seems or feels in our life. Secondly. God's word is true. God's word is filled with all kinds of promises, statements about who God is, what God is like, what God will do. 
And much of it, if we're honest, seems far-fetched and unappealing to the unbelieving mind. Unbelievers will constantly assault God's word and accuse those who believe it from everything from ignorance to bigotry. The reality is much of what we see in God's word cannot be proven here and now. Right? We look at look at verse 4. Thrones, judgments given to them, the souls of those who had been beheaded, raised to life, set and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Can you, in any physical way, prove that verse? You can't, can you? I mean, it, it, is, it is a promise from God, but it, it, it's words on a page. It, it's not something we can't go dig around in the yard and find archaeology proving this is going to happen. This is Instead, what we have is a, a promise from God. This will happen. And we know from other places, all of God's promises are true. God has promised to keep all of his word and do all the things he said. Now, as disciples of Jesus, we have to be settled on that. Now, the world is going to find much of this unappealing and silly. And if we buy into their mindset, we will not have the strength to persevere when things get hard. God's word is True, we must be certain it is going to come to pass. These things will happen. God has said it and God will do it. So how can we have this kind of confidence? Well, God has given us two ways, two guarantees that his word is true and his promises will come to pass. The first is Jesus, who he is and what he's done. When Adam and Eve first fell into sin. God promised that one day a savior would come. He would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. Now, At the time, nobody knew what that meant. But as the Old Testament progresses, we begin to get a, a better picture of what this Messiah is going to do and the things he's going to accomplish. And, and one of the things we learn in Isaiah 53 is he's going to be a suffering servant. He is going to be beaten and rejected and bruised and die badly and be buried in a grave not his own. And he's going to be considered a, a sinner by the people and rejected by all. This is who the Messiah is going to be. This is how the serpent is going to bruise his heel. is by striking him and breaking his body and murdering him of his life. And that was fulfilled ultimately in Jesus on the cross. All of the abuse he took from the, from the Jewish leading, religious leading leaders was the fulfillment of this promise. All the beatings he took from the, the Roman guards was a fulfillment of this promise. The crucifixion, the mocking, people, him hanging naked in humiliation and his ultimate death was all a fulfillment of his promise. And then another promise was, of course, he would rise from the dead, which he did. The cross and the empty tomb of Jesus are meant to give us confidence in the promises of God. They are true. Paul says in Romans, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
For as many as the promises of God are in Him, in Jesus, they are yes, and therefore through Him also is our amen to the glory of God through us. Here's, here's the idea. If our God will keep the promise of a Redeemer, even though it meant the horrific death of His only Son, won't He keep the others? If God will do that which is most, provide for our salvation through Christ on the cross, won't He do that which is least, which is everything else there is? If we can look at the cross and we can see our penalty for our sin has been paid, we can look at the empty tomb and say our Savior indeed rose from the dead. And because of that, I am redeemed. I have been born again. I am saved. If I can look at the cross and see that, I can also look at the cross and see a promise and a guarantee God will do all He said He will do. All of God's promises in Christ are yes and amen to the glory of God. So if I believe Jesus died for my sins... And I believe Jesus rose again. Then I look at this promise of the thrones and the resurrection. And I say yes and amen that's mine. That will come to pass for me someday. We can hold on to that. Another guarantee God has given us is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit given to us when we believe. As we repent of our sins and believe the gospel, He regenerates us, He seals us, and He indwells us. And all of this is a pledge, the Bible says. He he seals us and He is given to us as a pledge. Now notice, this is a continuation of this, right? The last verse. As many other promises of Him are yes, and therefore through Him also are amen, the glory of God the Father. Now he who establishes us with you is Christ and anointed us as God who sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So all of this is meant to be our way of knowing God will keep his promises. Now pledge, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of it being a down payment. It's like earnest money. You buy a house, you make a certain amount down to show that you're going to follow through with the purchase. The pledge, the earnest God has given us to be within us is not... Mere money, but it is the Holy Spirit given to us as a promise from God, a guarantee. He will do all the things He has promised to do. Since we have been given the Holy Spirit, we can be sure God will fulfill all the other promises He's given to us. All of the promises of God are sure to come to pass because God has made the down payment in us by giving us His Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit reside in you? Does He produce His fruit in you? Does He fill you and lead you and guide you and empower you and gift you to serve Jesus? If you can say yes to those things, then God has fulfilled that promise of giving you Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. You can say God will certainly do the rest. God's Word is true and as disciples of Jesus, we we must know that. We must be grounded in that because the world is not going to get any friendlier toward our faith and our confidence that the Word of God is just that, the Word of God. And then finally, serving Jesus is worth it. These disciples suffered terribly. 
in their last days on earth. They were shut out from being able to buy or sell, so they went without food and other necessities of life. They were hunted like animals. They were told to take the mark. Those who would not were executed. They lived through some of the worst hardships ever to come on the world in the tribulation period. To say their last days were difficult would be an understatement. We may not live through the tribulation, but we too will live through difficult days. Trials and tribulations will come into our life. There is no way to avoid this. It doesn't matter how much faith we have. We will suffer in this life. It doesn't matter how holy we live. We will suffer in this life. It doesn't matter how much we pray. We will suffer in this life. That's just the reality. The reality promised to us in God's word. In this life you will have tribulation, Jesus says. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And during the difficult times, we will be tempted to give up. For a variety of reasons. We'll be tempted to say, I really believe and these bad things are happening. What's the point? I really prayed and nothing changed. What's the point? I was faithful and it went bad anyway. What's the point? That's the temptation. That is what the enemy is going to whisper in our ear. Look, you've been faithful to God and he hasn't been faithful to you. That's why your life is difficult. That's why these things are going on. And if we're not careful, we will believe his lies. And we will depart from the faith. Many do. But Revelation 20 and 21 teach us this would be a mistake because serving Jesus is worth it. What these disciples suffered in the chapters leading up to this is nothing compared to the glory they're experiencing in the chapter we're now looking at. What they're experiencing now makes what they endured worth it. We've talked about this before in an earlier lesson, but the idea of delayed gratification, putting off something enjoyable now because of something better will receive later. Life of a disciple of Jesus is truly about delayed gratification. Right? The, the dragon, the dragon offers immediate gratification. He offers peace and prosperity and pleasure and all of your wildest dreams right here and right now. Now, ultimately, there's damnation. Don't think about ultimately, think about now. Jesus, meanwhile, he offers us a cross. He tells us to deny ourselves, to take up that cross, to follow him, to patiently endure tribulation, to be faithful unto death. But there's ultimately salvation. Now, our ability to say what I endure now is worth when I get to heaven with Jesus, will largely determine our ability to be faithful to Jesus. If we are driven by the immediate, instant gratification, really, of our culture, we won't make it. Because life as a disciple of Jesus here and now is always going to be difficult. 
And if I can only serve Jesus so long as it's easy and it makes my life enjoyable in the ways that I want it to be enjoyable, I won't follow him long. Because faith in Jesus will always run contrary to the culture. And it will always cause friction and difficulty. In the book of Hebrews, these people understood this. Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly while being made a public spectacle through insults and distress. Partly by becoming companions with those who were so treated. You showed sympathy toward prisoners. Accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Knowing that you have for yourself a better and lasting possession. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. If you have need of endurance, so that you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is a great picture of delayed gratification. They had suffered because of their faith in Jesus. And they did it joyfully. Right? They joyfully endured the seizure of their property because they knew what Jesus had given them or would give them in the future, is better than what they lost. And the admonition is, remember that. Right? Re- remember that. Don't throw away that confidence. There's a great reward coming. But you need endurance. You need to, to stay faithful. You need to, to stay the course and not give up. Because after you've done the will of God, if you receive, you have to endure. Jesus says those who endure to the end, the same will be saved. Now, what what does that say about those who don't endure to the end? Those who fall away because things get difficult. Well, I think it means they're not going to be saved at the end. But that's not a... The the point here is it's worth it. Yes, things here now will be difficult at times. At times they'll be wonderful. At times they'll be blessed. But at times they will be very, very hard. But... When we stand before Jesus, we're not going to look back at this life and regret the things we missed. We're not going to look back at the times we denied ourselves, took up our cross and followed Jesus rather than give in to the desires of the world. We're not going to look back and wish we had followed the dragon and his power and and the things he was offering us more. We're not. The world may make us think we'll regret missing out on it. The world is wrong. If we look back at all on this life, the only regrets we'll have are on the things we didn't do for Jesus. If there are regrets, they won't be about the times we denied ourselves and followed Christ taking up our cross. The regret will be on the times where we were selfish and self-willed and did our will instead of God's will. We, we won't look back and regret all the money and all the sacrifices we made for Jesus. We will look back and regret all of the sacrifices we did not make for Jesus. If there's any regret at all, it will not be about the worldly things we did not do. It will be about the worldly things we did do. When we see Jesus, when we are with Jesus, everything will be worth it. There will be difficult times in our life. However, our faithfulness to Jesus now will be worth it then. No matter what the hardships or the difficulties are. When we get to heaven with Jesus, we'll not regret our delay in gratification. We will understand what Paul meant in Romans 8.18. 
when he said the sufferings of this life cannot be compared to the glory of the next. So as we come to the end of the service, I just want to think about these three things. Maybe today you need to pray about one of these in your life as a response. Maybe circumstances right now are difficult. Right now things aren't working the way you think they ought to. You're praying, you're trying, and it's going sideways no matter how hard you try to straighten it out. And what you need is God to just remind you He's in control and you're in His hand. If that's your need today, do that. Pray. Maybe you struggle with believing God's Word. Now, I'm not going to say this is always the case. But if the two guarantees God has given us, the cross and the Spirit, perhaps there's something wrong in our relationship with God. If we can't trust the promises and trust the Word. Maybe I'm not really sure Jesus died and rose again and has saved me. Maybe I'm not sure the Spirit indwells me. I don't have the fruit of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit in my life. Maybe something is off there and that being off makes me doubt the rest of it. This is a time to settle that. Or maybe you do wonder, is it really worth it? Any of us could be like Demas, who loved the world, forsook Christ and Paul. The love of the world is strong. It's a very real thing. That's why we're warned against it so much. So maybe the need is, God, break, break the hold the world has upon me. I want to serve Jesus no matter what. So let's all stand.